Hello. Welcome to the Fantastic Fiction at KGB podcast. I'm Rajan Khanna. Fantastic Fiction at KGB is a monthly reading series held on the third Wednesday of every month at the famous KGB bar in Manhattan's East Village. Fantastic Fiction is hosted by Ellen Datlow and Matthew Kressel and features up-and-comers and luminaries in the fields of science fiction, fantasy, and horror. The following audio was recorded live at the KGB bar, so please excuse the various background noises, bumps in the night, and other disturbances that you might hear. It's a live reading in New York City, and anything can and often does happen. And now, on to this month's reading. We hope you enjoy the following recording, and we thank you for listening. Hello. Hi there. Good evening, everybody. On this last week of summer or whatever it is, I don't know. I don't know when summer ends, but for us it's going to end, because next month it definitely won't be summer. So, um, Anyway, welcome to Fantastic Fiction at KGB. We have a nice, a good set of reading, uh, readers tonight. Um, I am, re- I am <coughs> Ellen Datlow, and Matt Kressel cannot be here with... I, I only had one goddamn beer, and, <laughs> I, and I've lost my... Ma- you know. Anyway, Matt can't be with us tonight, but David Mercurial Rivera is my co-host this evening. So, yeah. um, um, as you know, you can... If you're not signed up on our mailing list, you can. Just go to Fantastic Fiction at KGB. We only send messages about this. We do not spam you or anything. Now, if someone hacks us, we have no responsibility for that. But anyway, um, our forthcoming readers are October 17th, Lawrence M. Schoen and Tim Pratt. November, tw- okay. November 21st, Leanna Renee Haber and Kat Rambo. December 19th, Nicole Corner Stace? Stace? Do you know how to pronounce it? I'm sorry, it's S-T-A-C-E. I'm not sure. I'll have to find out before we Introducer, I think Corner Stace and Maria Devana Headley. January 16th, Julie C. Day and Victor Laval. February 20th, uh, F. Brett Cox and TK. We'll see. TK, TK, yeah. Or TBA, uh, as they used to do in TV, the TV listings. Uh, I used to think that actually meant something. I used to read all the TV listings and TV guy. I loved it. I just read all the listings. And I thought TBA actually was some show when I was a kid. I didn't know what it was. You know. um, it took me a long time to realize what it actually meant. Uh, March 20th, Molly Tanzer and TK. April 17th, Nathan Ballingrud and Arkady Martin. And May 15th, Simon Strontis and Kaya Shanti Wilson. So that's what we've got coming up. And this evening, oh, I have a book to give away at some point. Um, the Best of the Best Horror of the Year is coming out October 2nd. I've got my advanced copies, um, and I have too many. <laughs> but anyway, I would like to give one away in the middle of, uh, you know, during my break. And someone think of a good contest, a good way to do it. I'm not going to throw it into the air like Jeff Ford did, because I only have one. And if, uh, if I had five, it would be, I could just spread out. But for one, I don't want to throw them. So someone, if you have an idea of how... It's a heavy book, too. So. so if you have an idea of, and it can't be something that you know the answer to if it's a quiz, all right? <laughs> but if you have an idea of, of how we can do this, let me know. Anyway, our first guest tonight is Patrick McGraw. He's the author of nine novels, including Asylum, an international bestseller, and Spider, which David Cronenberg filmed for McGraw's script. He has also published three collections of short fiction, including most recently, Writing Madness. 
He teaches a writing workshop at the New School and is currently at work on a novel about the Spanish Civil War. His most recent novel is The Wardrobe Mistress. And by the way, Writing Madness is up for the World Fantasy Award. Yes. Yeah. So, so please welcome Patrick McGraw. Great. <clears throat> Thank you very much, Helen. Uh, it's great. Uh, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll move around a bit. No, hang on. I need to watch my, see my watch because I'm not. I don't want to go over. Um, uh, it's not my first time here at KGB, um, but it's always always a great pleasure to come back. It's a great bar and a great place to read. Um, so. Um, Oh, do I? I've got some water nearby, even if I don't drink it. Um, so my um, my most recent book is called *The Wardrobe Mistress*, um, and I thought I'd read from it, and I thought I'd just start at chapter one, so I didn't have to fill you in on on who's who. So there should be no confusion. That's my theory. Um, uh, and uh, the reason I'm going first is um, not because I shouldered Siobhan out of the way, but because we, are, we have a difference of tone in our readings tonight, and we thought it'd be better that we get the dirty stuff out of the way first. <laughs> <laughs> Something like that. Char uh <coughs> Chapter one. The actor Charlie Grice was dead. It was a shock. And that good society, the men and women of the London theatre, had come together for the funeral. It was January 1947, and a bitterly cold day in Golders Green. We gathered in the forecourt, and there were so many of us, once we got inside that big chapel, that latecomers had to stand outside. A full house. Well, Gricey deserved no less. Although, whether he'd have chosen Golders Green, we rather doubt that. His daughter Vera was in dark glasses and a black fur coat. Herself an actress, she looked fragile and clung to her mother's arm throughout. Joan Grice was the mother, also in black and wearing a veil. Not well-liked Joan, but it was hard not to feel sorry for her that day. The marriage had apparently been a good one. We've heard Joan Grice called a beautiful woman. A striking looking woman, certainly, and a formidable one. Um, her hair was black and without a thread of silver. She wore it pulled back with some severity from her face. The better, it was said, to come at the world like a scythe. As tall as her late husband and a slim woman, her face was pale and sculpted, with the chin carried high, the whole seeming forged from some hard white stone. The effect could be dramatic. But oh dear, we hate to say it, her teeth were horrible. Discoloured, black at the roots and with gaps between. And as is the case with so many of the English, it may have accounted for the sourness of her personality. That is, her profound reluctance to smile. But if her tongue could be vicious, her mind was clear, even in drink. And she was one of the best wardrobe mistresses in London. For herself, she liked a good black cloth, an old-fashioned cut perhaps set off with a touch of silver at throat or wrist. With a needle, she was more adroit than most, when she had to be, and fast too. 
With a little padding, a trim, a pleat, a pin, a stitch, a scrap of lace, she could turn the most unpromising garment into a thing of elegance and distinction. Under the coat, she wore a boxy jacket, broad in the shoulder, with a narrow skirt, legs in sheer silk. Joan took pride in her work and expected those who worked under her to observe her own high standards. She'd always tried to spare her husband the devastation she could visit on lesser mortals, not always successfully. But where their daughter was concerned, that is, when it came to Vera, she was a lion. Most of those present were known to her, but there were a few we knew who they were. Oh, yes, she'd never seen before, and they weren't theatrical types. But then, Gricey had mixed with all sorts, criminals not accepted. Sir John Brogue was there, and in good order. She'd often looked after his costumes. And there was Dame Anna Flitch, all in white, a vague smile on her badly powdered face as she handed out lilies. And where in God's name did she get lilies in this winter of austerity? Ed Colfax was present, and Jimmy Urquhart, looking none the worse for a spell in the nick. Her old friends Hattie Waterstone and Delphi Dix, that old hoofer in a wheelchair now. And Rupert, of course, skint, they said. But yes, so many of the old crowd, the ones who'd survived the war. And to think that Gricey missed it, he'd have loved it. Vera, meanwhile, was still in her dark glasses, gripping tight her mother's arm as they moved toward the chapel, and it was clear the poor girl was in some distress. So tall and lovely, a more statuesque woman than her mother, and yet so delicate today, heartbreaking really, we thought so. Vera's husband was Julius Glass, the former impresario, a thin, sallow-skinned man some twenty years her senior, and he was on her left flank, and beside him was Gussel Hertzfeld, a Jewish refugee he'd apparently saved from the Nazis. And a most interesting creature. She told Hattie she was Julius's sister, but we had our doubts. It seemed improbable, frankly. Julius, meanwhile, was sombre and watchful, and loomed close over his women, like a kind of yellow marsh heron. How Joan felt about him that day was anybody's guess, but we'd heard talk that Julius and Gricey had not been on the best of terms, put it mildly, and it was even said that Julius was there on the steps when Gricey fell. But this was the family, and together they were ushered to the front of the chapel and there took their pew. Joan could hear from behind her a murmur of chatter and now and then some laughter. We'd all loved Gricey. Some of us had, anyway. Then came the coffin. Oh, the hardest moment of all, surely. It entered stage left, with six strong men carrying it. One convulsive sob from Vera, and Julia slid an arm around her. Joan thought she'd shake him off, but instead she leaned into him, as though she might otherwise crumple legless to the cold stone floor, poor girl. And cold it was in there, all right, bloody freezing, we saw the speaker's breath turn to smoke in the chill damp of that packed and steamy chapel. Snow was forecast for later in the day. We're in for it, we thought. Another foul, bloody winter. Then up they came to the podium to talk about the man. There were anecdotes. His war work as a special constable in the West End. The stories he'd told. He'd been there after that dreadful bomb came down the ventilation shaft at the Café de Paris 
no laughing matter. It blew Snake Hips Johnson to pieces. 186 people died in London that night. Acts of kindness were remembered, support he'd given to others, both moral and monetary at times of crisis or loss. Monetary, thought Joan, where did that come from? There'd never been that much to spare. Waves of sympathy flowed from the back of the chapel to those who'd been closest to him. She could feel it now, and much of it was for Vera, whose own story was familiar to this company. Such promise, a luminous stage presence, everyone said so. Absolutely distraught. She'd been very close to her father, of course. Everything she knew she'd learned from him, and just look at her now, shattered. When the service was over, we watched old Gricey going out the back way, through the curtains, in his coffin. In his coffin! And how are we supposed to live without him now? Must have been their common thought, mother and daughter. Then the danger of collapse was most real. But upright they stood, Vera's dark glasses having come off, damp red eyes revealed in the wan, fragile, tragic face. Lovely, even in grief. Her arm was in her mother's now, as slowly they moved down the aisle, and not a dry eye in the house. Every one of them fixed on these two tall, slow women in black. The mother upright and slender, the daughter swaying ever so slightly, seeming almost to totter in her sorrow. Like royalty they turned this way and that, nodding, offering the pressed lip, stoic half-smile to faces both sympathetic and tearful, but above all familiar from a thousand dressing rooms and curtain calls, opening night parties and chilly rehearsals in cold church halls with frost on the windows. This was our world. We were saying goodbye to one of our own. Then we were milling about in the courtyard again. Julius had offered his house for the wake, even laid on transport for those who had none. Joan wasn't too happy about it, that was clear, but she didn't have the energy to protest, poor thing. It's a long way to Tipperary, and it's even longer from Golders Green to Pimlico. But off we went, dozens of us. And when the family joined us later, after seeing Gricey laid to rest, or his ashes anyway, the party was going strong. Under the wide and starry sky, dig the grave and let me lie. Actors are like priests. Or perhaps undertakers, we've heard it said, for we live with death in a rather intimate kind of a way. We've all died a thousand deaths on a public stage, and we don't take it lightly. We don't take it too seriously either. What we do take seriously is the suffering of the bereaved, and we turned out en masse for old Gricey. And when Joan and Vera entered Julius's house, it was packed. People in every room, in the backyard even, despite the cold and despite the long journey, but Vera, Vera had insisted she wanted her dad's wake in her husband's house as she'd wanted him cremated in Golders Green, and who could deny her? She had her reasons, and her mother knew better than to argue with her when Vera's mind was made up, even if it did mean having the wake in that man's house. It was just as the front door closed behind them and the great wave of voices was upon them and they had to go forward and be part of it. In fact, play leading roles that Joan first heard it. Quiet, amused, 
unmistakably him, her husband's voice. Now just pull yourself together, dear. You're on. When she reached the kitchen, she was given a large gin, but she was bewildered, almost undone, at hearing Grice's voice, and she wanted more. She wanted to hear him again. What she actually wanted was conversation. So she left the kitchen and went upstairs to Julius and Vera's bedroom. She sat on the bed, but there was nothing. Silence. She pleaded with him to speak again. She heard the cries and laughter of the several dozen people gathered below, but no Gricey. For the first time since his death, she felt herself starting to crack, like a dead twig in winter, she told us later. She was weeping now, in frustration as much as sorrow. She didn't notice she was shivering until the door started slowly to open. She turned frozen, rooted to the bed, expecting she knew not what, then a head came round the door. It was Vera. Here you are. Oh, God, Mum, you're freezing. A sorry sight she made, she supposed, shivering and weeping on the bed. And she hated Vera seeing her like this. Vera, in fact, had very rarely seen her mother cry before. And she watched her now with some curiosity. She sat on the bed beside her, gently put her arms around her. Joan told her what had happened, hearing Grice's voice, and Vera didn't say she'd heard him too, for she hadn't. She just held her mother, murmuring words of comfort. Then she said they should go down to the party, and this Joan hadn't expected, Vera having earlier given her to understand that a party was the last thing she needed, but it was her father's wake after all. She now told her mother she had to get back in the swim, or as Grice would have said, as he did say, just pull yourself together, dear, you're on. So the two went downstairs, where in the kitchen some old girl told, John, told Joan that she knew how she felt because she'd lost her husband too. When, said Joan. Seventeen years, love, this last Christmas. I'll never last that long, said Joan. Then she asked the woman if she missed him still. Yes, dear, oh, I do. Drawing close, she said, I haven't told him he can go yet. She clutched Joan's elbow, all talcum powder and cattle and mothballs and gin, and said she hadn't finished with him. Joan thought, finished with him? There'd be no finishing for her either. Not until she too was dead, and the pair of them, she and Gricey, just dots of light in the minds of whoever remembered them, yes, and then fading with each passing year until they grew so dim as to be practically invisible and then blinked out. There'd be nothing left of them after that, she thought, just darkness. That's finishing, she thought. Yes, January it was, 17th of January, coldest day of the year so far. Never forget it. Well, how could you? Glad did I live and gladly die, and I laid me down with a will. Later that night, as the snow started to come down, she sat at the kitchen table in the flat in Archibald, in Archibald Street, where they'd lived for almost 30 years. Mile End, just up from the cemetery in St Clement's, her head was in her hands, and there was a nauseous feeling in the pit of her stomach. Grief comes in waves, this she was learning, and it also happens in stages. 
She was at last starting to make an account of what had happened, and it was hard not to place blame. Of course it was her fault. She was quite well aware of that. She should have been able to save him. Although Christ alone knows, she thought he was a difficult man at the best of times. And these days, unless he ran them every morning, he had trouble remembering his lines. He was at the Irving Theatre in St Martin's, giving his Malvolio at the time. And yes, he'd been drinking, he was angry. And this she knew for a fact, it would never have happened if he hadn't been in a rage with Julius Glass. Though what was said between the two men she had no way of knowing, other than that it probably concerned Vera, and given what she knew about Julius, anyone would have got furious with him, stormed out the back door, oh dear, poor Joe, and fallen down the steps. A week later she felt no better. Worse, in fact. Things hadn't been so good between them for a while. Well, years if she were honest. But it made no difference to what she felt. She'd given her heart to that man. If he'd drifted away from her, she thought, that's just what men did. He still came home to her every night. Now she was convinced he hadn't died at all. No, he'd been buried alive. She'd let them bury him alive. Actually, she'd had him cremated, but of course she wasn't thinking straight. <laughs> again, it was late. Again, she couldn't sleep, and she'd gone into the kitchen to get a splash more gin. There were two, they were two parts to a whole, she thought, she and Gricey, indivisible. Or no, inseparable, even when apart. Even when he was in an out-of-town production, they were inseparable in spirit. And they were inseparable still. It was an idea she tried not to dwell upon, but at times it arose with such clamour that against her will she was forced to attend to it. It had happened once already while she was coming home on her bicycle. A sudden cry in the darkness that seemed to leap from her throat like a fish. And of course it was for Gricey, who was dead, or so they claimed who left her to deal with it all, life ongoing, their daughter's troubles, everything. They cremated him, she'd started to grieve. And now for what seemed the first time she was yet again faced, not only with his absence and a silence that once had been filled by that incomparable man. Oh yes, tender, funny, faithful, in his way. He was an actor, dear. She had no illusions on that score. But loyal to a fault. Was there no end to the qualities she discovered in him now he was dead? What did it matter if he was short with her at times, if he had a temper, if he waxed hot, then cold? He was the man she'd lived with for 27 years, and herself not the easiest of women, and, and it wasn't even just himself she missed. It was his sure, clear instinct as to what needed saying to Vera, how seriously her crises were to be taken, above all, how to bring the girl down when she started to climb the walls, which seemed to be happening more frequently these days, these bleak, desolate days of cold and want and loss. No, Joan's problem was he wasn't there to advise her, and she was angry about it and frightened too. So when was he coming home? When? She'd got back to the flat exhausted, fed the cat and poured herself a nice drink. She'd gone into his room where he kept his clothes in the wardrobe and he'd sometimes slept there. Well, often he'd slept there if she were honest. And she stood at the window and looked down at the street, lamppost railings, cobblestones, the cemetery walls down the way, and it was snowing again. She sat on his bed for a while. She finished her drink and decided she'd have another. Why not? On her way back to the kitchen, she realised there were tears streaming down her face. 
and all she wanted was to hear his bloody voice again. When she awoke the next morning, she was at once aware of the two large gins she'd had before bed. In the old days, they'd have a cocktail. Sometimes they'd go down the pub or up west when they were flush. Drinking alone had always seemed a pitiable business to Joan, for it smacked of despair. Who are you going to talk to, yourself? Those first days, she was tempted to drink herself into a stupor every night, but that way madness lay, or if not madness, then a kind of dissipated languor that would soon sap the light from her eye and the fire from her brain, and then where would she be? Not running the wardrobe of the Beaumont Theatre, that's where, and that job, it was her task in life. Give that up, you might just as well turn your face to the wall. But she'd made an exception last night, and now she regretted it. She knew exactly what had happened. It was being in his room. She'd made a fatal error. She'd gone into his wardrobe. Yes, we know. Ridiculous. Most unwise. Move along, dearie. How mawkish can an old girl get? She hadn't told Vera. She'd imagine what she'd say. She told herself she'd get rid of them, but it was almost two weeks now, and they were still there. All his suits, shirts, shoes, underwear, everything. So much he had. Even despite the years of austerity, the rationing of cloth, what's so very, very destructive was that she could still raise a faint residue of the man if she pressed her nose to a collar or a cuff, and it always finished her off. That hair oil, why such almost imperceptible traces of a stale fragrance should summon the essence of a man whose earthly remains had now apparently been reduced to a small heap of ashes, and put in a pot she kept under her bed. This she didn't understand, but all it took was a large gin, or sometimes two, and she was at them again. Oh yes, and oh she hauled them out. She laid them out as though she were his valet or his dresser, spread them across the bed, all the while in her mind's eye admiring him as they went out front door, the front door together, or even as he emerged from this same room to ask her if he looked all right. For he was a dandy, old Grice. He liked a sharp crease and a clean line. He was a Tottenham boy, of course, but he did enjoy carrying himself like a gent. A proper man of the theatre. And in another second, she was on top of them, on the bed, with the fabric clutched in her fists and her nose buried deep in collars, in cuffs, in armpits, in crotches. Funny, isn't it, we said. How often it's the strong women who give themselves to these tricky men. Men who don't really seem worth the trouble. She sat at the kitchen table in her overcoat and cut half a banana into small slices. It wasn't often you got a banana. And drank her tea. She'd had the other half later. A grey windy day, very cold already. In five minutes she'd go in and put them back on their hangers, tidy the place up like looking in on the scene of an orgy the morning after, the hint of dawn in the sky when the revels have come to an end and the revel revellers all gone home. That's depravity, she thought. That's excess. They wanted her to come to some kind of a benefit performance at the Irving for Gricey, see his twelfth night again. No, she wouldn't be doing that. She wasn't up to that. Thank you.
going to take about a 10 minute break, have a drink. Um, we stay, we come here for free. The only thing we expect is buy some drinks, either alcohol or none, and tip your bartenders kindly and generously. And you'll see you in about 10 minutes. And then I'll do the, we'll do the. Siobhan's going to explain it to you after I introduce him. But anyway, Siobhan Carroll is a Canadian author. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, shit. I'm sorry. Do it, do it. Oh, here we go. All right, now this is the way you properly introduce it. Um, First of all, good evening, everyone. Thanks for coming tonight. And I want to thank, um, I'm David Mercura Rivera. I want to thank Ellen and Matt Kressel yes. uh, for inviting me here to guest host tonight at the iconic KGB bar. I got carried away, I'm so sorry. That's all right. All right. And when I, when I say iconic, I mean, there's tremendous history at this place that a lot of you may not be aware of, including the fact that uh, this used to be a speakeasy and um, Ukrainian socialists used to populate this, this, uh, this space in the 1950s, back when McCarthyism was, was rampant. And um, it closed for a while. It opened again in the 1980s as an art gallery, and then um, reopened in 1993 as a bar, and has become a literary institution since then. In the late 1990s, Terry Bisson and the late Alice Turner started this reading series. And it's been going strong ever since under the auspices of Ellen and Matt. Well, between that was Gavin Grant. Yes, let's not forget Gavin Grant. <laughs> uh, admissions always free, as Ellen said. Please drink up. Alcoholic, non-alcoholic, but please drink up. Tip our bartenders. And it is my pleasure tonight to introduce our second reader, Siobhan Carroll. Siobhan Carroll is a Canadian author whose short stories have appeared in venues like Lightspeed and Beneath Ceaseless Skies. A scholar as well as a writer of speculative fiction, she typically uses the fantastic to explore dark histories of empire, science, and the environment. In 2018, she has short stories out in Beneath the Ceaseless Skies and Ellen Datlow's The Devil in the Deep Anthology, and forthcoming in The Best of the Best Horror of the Year. <laughs> so. So there will, there will be a contest, a contest to win this, and Siobhan's going to explain how you can win this. Everybody, ladies and gentlemen, Siobhan Carroll. I'm just getting myself set up here. Lovely to see you all. Can you hear me at the back? I'm a quiet verse person by voice person by nature, so I need to always check that. And if you can't hear me at any point, and you think you probably should, wave your hands and I will see you. Thank you. Um, so I was going to say something about the contest. Well, I'll start by saying something about this story. Despite what my bio said about dark histories, uh, this is actually going to be a slightly lighter uh, history or short story today. It's a new short story. Uh, called uh, for, um, for He Can Creep, and despite the title, it is not going to be that horrific. 
And the thing is, it is based or riffing off a famous work of 18th century literature. This is coming from me as an English prof. And so the contest is this. At the end of my reading, I'll ask if anyone in this room recognizes the source material for this story. And if you do, you get a story, and then I have a, you get the book that uh, Ellen has edited, in which I myself am really looking forward to reading, because I can tell you that there are some fabulous stories in here by people who aren't me, and it is well worth your time. So the other thing that I'm going to tell you as we have this atmospheric New York siren going in the background, is that this story is set in an 18th century madhouse. And at one point in the story, I will use the 18th century convention of having a first letter followed by a dash, like D dash, which is the 18th century version of bleeping. So you can use your imagination to fill in the gap. When we're reading you three stories, three scenes from this story, and I will tell you also that the central character is a cat. That night, Satan comes to the madhouse. Joffrey is curled at his usual spot at the poet's back when the devil arrives. The devil does not enter as his demons do in whispers and pattering of light. His presence steals into the room like smoke, and as with smoke, Joffrey is aware of the danger before he's even awake, his fur on end, his heart pounding. Hello, Joffrey, the devil says. Joffrey extends his claws. At that moment, he knows something is wrong, for the poet, who normally would wake with a howl at such an accidental clawing, lies still and silent. All around Joffrey is a quiet such as cats never hear. No mouse or beetle creeping along a madhouse wall, no human snoring, no spider winding out its silk. It is as if the night itself has hushed to listen to the devil's voice, which sounds pleasant and warm, like a bucket of cream left out in the sun. I thought you and I should have a chat, Satan says. I understand you've been giving my demons some trouble. And by the way, this is not the first scene in the story, in case you're wondering. The first thought that flashes into Joffrey's head is that Satan looks exactly as Milton describes him in Paradise Lost, only more cat-shaped. Joffrey, a poet's cat, has ignored vast amounts of Milton over the years, but some of it has apparently stuck. The second thought is that the devil has come into his territory and this means fighting. Puffing himself up to his utmost size, Joffrey spits at the devil and shows his teeth. This is my place, he cries, mine. Is anything truly ours? The devil sighs and examines his claws. He is simultaneously a monstrous serpent, a mighty angel, and a handsome black cat with whiskers the color of starlight. The, whiskers, the cat's whiskers are singed, the serpent's scales are scarred, and the angel's brow is heavy with an ancient grievance, and yet he is still beautiful in his way. But more of this later. Joffrey, I have come to converse with you. Will you not take a walk with me? Joffrey pauses, 
considering do you have treats? I have feasts awaiting, catnip fresh from the soil, salted ham from the market, fish heads with eyes still in them, scrumptiously poppable. I want treats, and treats you shall have. Come and see. Joffrey trots at the devil's heels, down the madhouse stairs, past the mouse, the mouse's nest on the landing, through the asylum's heavy door, which stands mysteriously open, and on to roads of darkness, beneath which the round orb of earth hangs like a jewel. He gazes with interest up at the blue glow of the crystalline firmament, at the fixed stars and at the golden chain of heaven from which all the universe is suspended. He feels hungry. Well, the devil says presently, let's get the formalities out of the way. He snaps his fingers. Instantly, Joffrey is dangling above the earth, staring down at it as one does a patterned carpet. He can see the gleaming rooftop of the madhouse and Bethnal Green and the darkened streets of London still bustling even at this time of night. All of this could be yours, Satan says. Yea, I will give you all the kingdoms of earth if you'll just bow down and worship me. Joffrey does not like heights. His fur is bristling, but at the same time he's prepared to fall. He catches the smell of the fish market in the air and hears the distant yowl of a tomcat making love in the street. And Joffrey understands for a moment what the devil is offering him. He understands also that this offer represents a fundamentally wrong order to the universe. You should bow down and worship Joffrey! <laughs> right, the devil says, I thought as much. He snaps his fingers again, and they are back on the path between the fixed stars with the planets far below them. You have the sin of pride, Cat, Satan says, a sin I am particularly fond of, given that it is my own. For that reason, I am taking you into my confidence. You see, I have an interest in your poet. Mine? That's debatable. There are multiple claims to Mr. Smart, the tyrants, his debtors, his families. The man is like a ruined estate, overrun with scavengers. Me? The devil shrugs. He owes for some of his earlier debauches. He was an extravagant man in his youth. And for that, I need to collect. Joffrey's tail twitches back and forth. Like many who have conversed with the devil, he can sense something wrong beneath this dark tide of speech, a lie buried beneath Satan's reasonable arguments. But he cannot work out what it is. Now, says the adversary, I would be willing to forgive this debt if your poet would but write me a poem. I have the perfect thing in mind, a lovely metered piece of guile that, unleashed, would lay waste to creation. Indeed, the devil says, I have planted this poem in his imagination on several occasions, but your poet is stubborn. He defies all his creditors, including, most importantly, me, and insists on writing this tripe, this vile piece of sycophancy for the tyrant of heaven who let me assure you, deserves no such praise. The poem of poems, Joffrey says. Exactly. Let us face facts, Joffrey, the poem your human labors over, the thing to which he has devoted his last years of labor, burning away his health, destroying his human relationships, even setting aside my own feelings on its subject matter, Joffrey. The fact is this. The poem he writes 
is not very good. Joffrey stares at his paws and beneath them at the blue glow of earth. Vaguely, the words of the, the poet's human visitors come to him. Have they not said much the same thing? Speaking as a critic now, Joffrey, do you not think the poem's let for structure is overly complicated? The wordplay in Latin and Greek too obscure to suit the common taste. Obscurity for the sake of obscurity, Joffrey, it will get him nowhere. Poetry is prayer, Joffrey says stiffly, repeating the words the poet murmurs to himself as he scratches frantically at his papers or the bricks or the skin on his forearms. Poetry is poetry. Two rows diverging in a yellow wood, people wandering about like clouds. Even that terrible thing about footprints, that's what readers want, Joffrey. Something simple and clear with a message. That all of one's life choices may be justified by looking at daffodils. That we exist in a world abandoned by God and haunted by human mediocrity. Don't you agree? Joffrey does not like literature of any kind unless it is about Joffrey. Even then, petting is better. And eating? Are there treats now? Ah, treats. Instantly a banquet tables before Joffrey. Everything the devil had promised is there. The fish heads, the salted ham, and things he forgot to mention. Like the vats of cream and crispy salmon skins. There's even a bowl of Turkish delight. Joffrey bolts toward the food. Suddenly a hand catches him by the scruff of his neck. The devil has grown gigantic. A mighty warrior singed and scarred by his contest with heaven. His smile gleams like a knife. Before you eat, Joffrey, I need a thing of you. Such a small thing. I want the food. And you shall get it if you but promise me this to stand aside when I come to visit your poet tomorrow night. I, to stand aside and not interfere. The uneasy sense that Joffrey had felt at the devil's first words returns with a vengeance. Why? Merely so I can converse with your poet. Joffrey thinks about Satan's proposition. As a cat well-versed in Milton, he is aware of the devil's less than salubrious reputation. On the other hand, there is a giant vat of cream right there. I agree, he says. The devil smiles. Released, Joffrey bolts to the table and food, there is so much food. He eats and eats and somehow there is still more to eat and somehow he can keep eating though his belly is starting to hurt. My thanks to you, Joffrey. The devil says, I will see you tomorrow. Joffrey's aware, vaguely, that Satan is walking away from him. But that does not matter. He has come to the bowl of Turkish delight, and having heard so much about it, it must taste good. So he selects a powdered cube of honey and rose water, one that is larger than all the others, and he takes a bite. All right, now I'm going to skip ahead to uh, some of the post-Joffrey uh, devil wrangles. Joffrey basically figures out that he has made a grand mistake in accepting this offer for multiple reasons. And the poet uh, makes a bargain with the devil that he is going to write the devil a poem that he has promised him. Sure enough, come nightfall, the devil steals into the madhouse. He looks for all the world like a London critic in a green striped waistcoat and a velvet coat. 
he stands outside the bars of the cell and peers inside. How now, Joffrey? Satan says. How does my poet fare? It is plain to see that the poet is shivering and sobbing on his bed. At the sound of the devil's voice, he turns his face to the wall and begins murmuring a prayer. Joffrey turns disdainfully to the wall. The devil tricked him. The devil is bad. The devil may not have the pleasure of stroking Joffrey or petting him on the head. Joffrey is more interested in staring at this wall. Staring intently. Maybe there is a fly here. Maybe not. The wall is more interesting than you, Satan. <laughs> Alas, Satan says, much as it wounds me to lose your good opinion, Joffrey, tonight I have other fish to fry. With that, Satan directs his attention to the poet. And he says in the language of humans, how goes my poem? Get behind me, Satan. Please, the devil says, hooking his hands in the lapels of his coat. Tis a sad thing when a wordsmith resorts to cliches, and hardly good manners in addressing an old friend. What, did I not aid you in your youth many a time in betting a wench or evading a creditor? Now I ask that you do a single thing for me, and you whimper about repaying my kindness for shame. I should not have agreed to it, the man says. Forgive me, Lord, I was weak. La, the devil says, aren't we all but enough of this moping? How goes the poem? The man is jerked upright like a dog yanked on a chain, and like a puppet. He rises from his bed in his nightclothes, no less, and takes up a few sheets of paper. He hands them with an iron stiff arm to the devil. The devil takes out a pair of amber spectacles and a red quill. He reads over the papers with great interest, from time to time making happy humming noises to himself, and from time to time frowning and scratching something down in bursts of flame. Capital phrasing, sir, he says, and, sir, you cannot rhyme love with dove. It is banal, and I cannot allow it. And I like this first reference to an essay on man, but this second makes you seem derivative, don't you think? The poet, peering at the pages from the vantage point of his madman's cell, looks miserable. Joffrey, inside the cell, begins to growl. Will not the devil come inside? Very well, then Joffrey will come to him. This is marvelous work, sir, the devil says, slotting the manuscript back between the poet's trembling fingers. I am very pleased with your progress. To contemplate the edits, I suggest, I will be back tomorrow midnight to collect the final version. I will not do it. But you shall, sir. You have made your bargain. Now you can sit here wallowing in misery, or you can comfort yourself that your poet will inscribe itself on the hearts of men. It is all the same to me. During this conversation, Joffrey slips through the bars. The devil is wearing an elegant pair of French boots, and when the devil turns on his heel, Joffrey pounces. <coughs> Claw and bite, snap and climb. Joffrey is simultaneously attacking a black cat with wicked claws and the mighty dragon of shining scale and a gentleman who is trying to shake him off his leg. Joffrey is tossed by the devil like the ark on the waves of destruction. He is smashed and crashed, bitten and walloped. Still, Joffrey clings to him, growling and clawing. Oh, bother, says the devil. Those were my favorite stockings. <laughs> Fire and darkness. The devil has shaken him off. Joffrey flies through the air and skids across the floorboards, but instantly he is on his feet again, his eyes ablaze, his skin electric. He will not let the devil go. Must we? The devil says, oh, very well. And now the devil begins to fight in earnest, and he is a terror. 
He is a thousand yellow-toothed rats swarming out of a sewer. He is a mighty angel whose wing beats breed hurricanes. He is a gentleman with a walking stick. Wallop. Joffrey's chest explodes with pain. He is thrown backward into the dark and dazed for a moment he thinks he cannot rise. But he must, and his legs carry him back into the fight. Joffrey stalks the devil anew, trying to keep clear of the Satan's walking stick wings. Suddenly the black cat is there, clawing at his eyes and springing away. Joffrey hisses and puffs up his fur, but somewhere at his aching chest is the sense that perhaps this is a fight he cannot win. Perhaps this is the fight that kills Joffrey. So be it. He leaps on the back of the cat rat angel dragon. He draws blood, the devil's blood, which smells of burning roses. Too quickly, the devil twists under his grip. Too quickly, the yellow teeth clamp down. Agony sears through Joffrey's neck. The devil has him by the throat. Joffrey struggles for purchase but can find none. His vision darkens. He can feel the de devil's teeth press hard against the pulse of his life. Dimly, he hears the poet yelling, No, no, the man cries, please spare my cat. We'll cause you no more trouble, I swear. The devil loosens his grip. Oomph, oomph, he says. He spits out Joffrey and tries again. Very well. And Joffrey is falling through blackness. Falling forever. So obviously that didn't go well. Uh, so Joffrey comes up with another plan, one that involves him approaching the other cats that he have been avoiding as Lord of the Madhouse. And uh, the, we, we meet them in a scene which I'm going to start halfway through. And for this, I may need to do voices. <laughs> Gentlemen, Polly says, licking her forepaw. There are going to be three additional cats introduced. The landing is my territory. Dueling is a disreputable practice, ill-fitting a cat of good character. Would you insult a lady in her own house? Joffrey and Black Tom both mutter apologies. Indeed, Polly says, if Satan is abroad, then we had best keep our sh claws sharpened for other fights. It is of such matters that I wish to speak, says Joffrey. By the way, everyone's speaking cat now, which is why they're more articulate. <coughs> then speak cat, Black Tom says. We don't have all day. There is one other whose counsel I require, says Joffrey. And he lifts his chin to the third cat in the yard, a bouncing, prancing black kitten. She wears a pretty bell on the collar of her blue, uh, of blue silk ribbon, and it jangles as she skips across the yard. The night hunter Moppet, Polly says, and sighs. Hello, Miss Polly. Hello, Master Tom. Hello, Master Joffrey, the kitten sings. Do you want to see my butterfly? <laughs> it is yellow and brown and very pretty. I believe it is a checkered skipper, which is a cartophallus peleomon? which is what I learned in Lucy's lesson on natural history, which is a very important subject. But that species is a woodland butterfly. Perhaps I am wrong about what kind of butterfly it is. Do take a look. The night hunter Moppet yawns open her small pink mouth, then closes it. She looks around her, puzzled. I think you ate it already, says Polly. Oh, so I did. It was very pretty. Is that milk? The kitten falls on the milk and drinks her fill. When she is done, she skips around the bowl, batting at the adults' noses. When she reaches Joffrey, though, she stops and looks concerned. Master Joffrey, are you hurt? I fought Satan, Joffrey says. Oh, 
The kitten's green eyes widen. She sits back on the bowl of milk, sloshing it over her bottom. Joffrey has something to say, Polly says, for which he requires our attention. I am paying attention. I am. The kitten, who had been licking up the spilled milk, turns her attention back to Joffrey. Joffrey sighs. The other night, he says, the devil came to the madhouse. And he tells them everything, the magnificent cat-riding feast, the vomit, the fight with Satan, the poet's despair, a bunch of other things I'm leaving out of this reading. <laughs> the cat, other cats watch him, wide-eyed. At the end of his tale, he hunches into himself and speaks the words that are hardest in the world for a cat to utter. I need your help. The other cats look at him in amazement. Joffrey feels shame settle on him like a fine dust. He drops his gaze and examines the shine of a brown beetle that is slowly clambering over a cobblestone. This is a deed-dashed strange business, Black Tom says grudgingly, Satan himself. But if you want my claws, sir, you shall have them. I too will aid you, Polly says, though I confess I am unsure what we can do against such an enemy. This time there will be four of us, Black Tom says, four cats. The devil won't know what hit him. This is the wrong strategy, says the night hunter Moppet, and her voice is the ring of a blade unsheathed. All kittenness has fallen away from the Moppet. What sits before the milk bowl is the ruthless killer of the courtyard, the assassin whose title, Night Hunter, is whispered in terror among the mice and birds of Bethnal Green. It is rumored that the Moppet's great-grandmother was a demon of the lower realms, which might perhaps explain the peculiar keenness of her green glass eyes and her talent for death-dealing. Indeed, as Joffrey watches, the Moppet's tiny shadow seems to grow and split into seven pieces, each of which is shaped like a monstrous cat with seven tails. The, seven, the shadow cat's tails lash and lash as the night hunter Moppet broods on Satan. It is true that as cats we are descended from the angel tiger who killed the Ishnuman rat of Egypt, says the Moppet. Her shadows twist into the shapes of rats and angels as she speaks. We are warriors of God and as such we can blood Satan, but we cannot kill him for he has another fate decreed. Saying this, the night hunter Moppet sighs and drops her gaze to the ground. The brown beetle is still there, trotting over the cobblestones. She begins to follow it with her nose. Moppet, Polly says sternly, you were telling us how we should fight the devil. Oh, sorry, sorry, the Moppet says. With great effort, she tears her gaze away from the beetle. Instantly, her seven shadows are back, larger than before, raising their claws to the heavens. To win this fight, we must think carefully of what we mean to win, says the night hunter Moppet. The pupils have disappeared from her eyes, which blaze green fire. Is it Satan's death? No. His humiliation, again, no. Speak for yourself, Black Tom says. He will run from my claws. The kitten's shadows turn and look at Black Tom with disapproval. When she next speaks, their voices join hers. They sound like the buzzing of a thousand flies. It is neither of those things, cry the army of Muppets. Think, what is it that the devil hopes to achieve? 
The destruction of the world, says Polly. A poem about his greatness, says Black Tom. The poet's soul, says Joffrey. Exactly, snarl the Muppets. And those three things are also one thing. If you steal it from him, good cat Joffrey, then you will have beaten the devil. With that, her shadows shrink back into a normal kitten-shaped shadow, and the pupils return to her eyes. But what do I steal? Joffrey asks desperately. The Moppet looks at him blankly. What? she says. Are we stealing something? <laughs> I think the night hunter Moppet has told us all she can, Joffrey, Polly says. But it is not enough, Joffrey says. Thinking is harder than fighting, and his head hurts. Still, he squeezes his eyes tightly and thinks over all that has happened. The poet, the devil, the poem of poems. I think I know what I must do, he says, but to do it I must sneak past the devil, and his eyes are keen. We shall help you, says Black Tom. We shall fight him, says Polly. The light of spirit fire flickers in the night hunter's eyes. Some of her shadows peer out from behind her body. And you, she intones, shall creep. I'll stop there. Thank you. Here's the question to inflict guilt upon any former English majors in the crowd. What famous work of 18th century literature, famous may be a stretch of the word, is this riffing on? Master Margarita. No. <laughs> Good try. The Exorcist. That's not 18th century. Lyrical ballads. Well, we're getting warmer. <laughs> no. Okay. Well, I'll leave that all then as the mysterious, unless it occurs to someone. We've got cat, madhouse, poetry. James Hope. Also a good guess, well, but not. Uh, my second question will be, well, there is another work besides Pope's, uh, Pope's uh, essay on man, which involves the devil, which is mentioned in here, which is also a work, a famous work of poetry. What is it? Thank you. Okay, you were the first person to say that. Can I award you the book? <laughs> Paradise Lost. Hey! But the actual, the actual, the, the answer to the first question is uh, Jubilee at Agno by Christopher Smart, which is, I do include part of the story, the poem at the end of the story, which is a real poem written by a madman in the 18th century that includes a very famous section called For I Will Consider My Cat Joffrey about how much he loves his cat. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Is that in the book, Ellen? Yeah, this is a brand new story. It's not out there yet. It's, it's drafted. Let's put it like that. Does it have a place? It does not yet have a place, but I will be sending it out shortly, and when it arrives, I will, I will post about it on social media, and you can find out there. Thank you. Thank you to both. Thank you, everybody. Come next month, hang out. You don't have to leave for a while. Have another drink, and uh, see you next month. You have been listening to the Fantastic Fiction at KGB podcast. Recorded live at the KGB Bar. I'm Rajan Khanna. 
We hope you enjoyed what you heard, and we thank you for listening. We also wish to thank Gordon Linzer for providing the audio. And always, thanks to our many fans of Fantastic Fiction at KGB for supporting us all these years. See you next month.